And with that, I would like to welcome Nuno Felix. Welcome. Hello, how are you? Everyone here for the undisclosed location of this week, I see. Shall we get going? Absolutely. I will uh, excuse myself and get out of your way. Thank you very much. <laughs> Axel is already fuming in the corner because he wants to talk some <laughs> politics about Germany or whatever politics he's into today. <laughs> and in the blue corner, from Portugal, Nuno Felix. Dude, I'm too old for MMA. And you have no, <laughs> you have absolutely no touch for it. <laughs> yeah, I will that, never do that again. <laughs> Don't embarrass yourself, mate. <laughs> it's better. Anyway, so I've shared everyone welcome uh, this Thursday. Again, here we are. I've shared to the um, to the nest of of the space. I've shared uh, four maps. The maps are, let me say, uh, immediately by military land net. Um, these guys, some of my. Uh, some of my favorite maps. Uh, they produce some of my favorite maps uh, in in the whole uh, community. So I uh, very much appreciate their work. Uh, follow them. Follow a lot of the the folks that do this, like War Mapper and Defmon and uh, Institute for the Study of War and so on. So again, as we do usually do, let's get to the. Um, 30,000 feet view of uh, of, the, uh, of the the situation uh, and let's start somewhere what you say Axel can you hear me Axel yeah thinking I muted everyone but no <laughs> it's fine so let's get started with this uh, with these maps uh, because I want um, to start by focusing in northern Lugans in uh, Vuladar. Vuladar uh, has been uh, Vuladar, sorry, <laughs> in the offensive and uh, in, in northern Lugansk. We've spoken about this last. Uh, Thursday, and honestly, we've seen the Russians um, pressing this this front, trying to press it west. You can see it in the first map uh, here. Remains critical. Kupiansk is absolutely critical for the Russians. Everyone has seen the the satellite photos of this. Everyone knows it's a very uh, important logistical hub. It also commands uh, the access, uh, the ground lines of communication. If the Russians are pressing an offensive, this is where they they should aim or where they're going to aim. Uh, they need to move, as I said last week, I'm not going to repeat this way too much. Uh, they basically need to move this front west to pin the Ukrainian forces against the Oskil River or eventually to... Um, seize uh, the whole of the Yoskil River uh, to use as a defensive line. 
this uh, frontier in northern Lugansk commands something that is very interesting, commands Svatov and the Starobilsk axis. I particularly like Starobilsk. I've said it many times. Svatov Starobilsk is where if the Ukrainians ever succeed in an offensive in this axis, it's where you threaten the whole northern Lugansk. But frankly, we've seen some fighting along this front, uh, but we have not seen the great Russian advance that everyone was t- uh, stating and, taught and talking about this week. So no major changes so far in this region. Some fighting, some uh, attempts to push this, um, push this offensive, but nothing way too much. Now, looking at, again, looking at these maps, and I'll go over the next map, and then I'll open some questions, because before people get lost in the maps, and I think it's more interesting when we have um, a more broad discussion. If you look at the following map, which is the map on the top right, you'll see this uh, situation here is uh, Lugansk, and the Donetsk uh, border, let's say, between the two the two oblasts. And here we have one key point that it's Bakhmut, of course, and Bakhmut still holds. The situation is difficult, but it still holds. We'll talk about Bakhmut a bit uh, down the road. And we have some Russian attacks along this front uh, out of Kremina. And uh, if you see here on the south of Kremina uh, to Mikolaivka, Vaseli, and a few other uh, Nevsky, Kremina itself, Kuzmini, and some of this other, these other uh, regions. Because here Russians are obviously trying to do what is the smart thing is to press an offensive on Liman. You'll see Liman, if you follow the Oskil River from the map above, you'll see Liman here in uh, south of the Oskil River and just north of uh, northeast of Sloviansk. Now, Liman, as we all have been made aware during this war, is one of the biggest rail yards uh, in Ukraine. It's one of the biggest logistical points. It's a focal pivot of operations for the Russians. Because Russian logistics, again, it's uh, tied down to rail. So rail lines are critical main supply routes for the Russians. And Liman is obviously the objective in this region. Now, the Russians have not succeeded in breaking through Kremlin. And they've not succeeded in this. Encircle Bakhmut, 
Mac north of Bakhmut, we see here the M03 being apparently uh, cut off by Russians and at least contested between the Russians and the Ukrainian military. And Russians are trying to this whole front west from so that's ask these two maps so we can move a little bit down the road so anyone has any questions about this or I'm just way too good at this and nobody has any questions. I think we should walk further through so that we can round it off and then we'll take questions. Okay, fine. Let's go. So I'll do as the man says. So, Bakhmut, uh, if we move um, south, we'll see Bakhmut itself. I want to focus just a little bit on Bakhmut. I've said it many times here. I'll say it again. Bakhmut was was a very impressive operation. But it's a very impressive operation by the Ukrainians because, frankly, uh, I don't uh, see back. One, two, three. My audio is gone. I don't know whether you can hear me. I can hear you. I think Nuno has got has dropped off. Okay, that's what I thought, because my audio was breaking, 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 and then uh, it went away. Um, all right. Um, at least I can hear you, Nick. That's a start. Nuno, if you can... I, I, didn't, have any, I didn't have any warning. It just, all of a sudden, I, I actually picked my phone up and thought the, the app had crashed for me, but it hadn't. No, no, sorry. Perfect. You're back. Uh, I'm back. You've gone for quite some time. We didn't hear you for at least uh, 45 seconds. Okay. Okay. So I'll I'll rephrase back to to the. Are you? Can you hear me now? Loud and clear. I think Siri got in the way, but uh, as I was saying, Bakhmut. So Bakhmut, uh, the the main thing is I don't without second guessing the, the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian command, I would say that Bakhmut uh, they need to avoid a sunken cost fallacy in this, which is uh, we've already bled and fought so much for Bakhmut that we will keep fighting and bleeding for Bakhmut even if it becomes unsustainable. It's not unsustainable yet. That's that's clear not unsustainable yet but it needs to be it's a word of caution because if it becomes unsustainable it should uh, be uh, abandoned because honestly it makes little difference at this stage of the war it's no big defeat for Ukraine it's at least um, 
a victory for Russians. Uh, we'll talk about our good uh, mate, Mr. Prigozhin, further on, because Prigozhin is actually uh, was probably very clear in what he said about the, um, the issue of Bakhmut. And I think the man's got a point. He's also grandstanding, but that's a conversation we'll have further ahead in this space. But the guy um, uh, has a point. Regarding, regarding the, the, the maps, let's go then a bit south. And a bit south, we'll see here the fascinating attack in Vuladar. Now, bear with me. I understand what the Russians, and I think we should all understand what the Russians are trying to do in Vuladar, right? What the Russians are trying to do in Vuladar makes sense, which is uh, you push the strategic front of Zaporizhia North uh, in order to uh, support the Donetsk operations and in order to avoid a spring counterattack by Ukraine. Now, this is almighty fine. It's, I can't understand the objective, but I understand the objective better if you press this front all along the northern front in Orykiv and uh, Kulyapoil. Uh, I would understand really, really better uh, that they did this. Doing it in Vuladar alone, in the outskirts of Vuladar in this region, makes uh, little sense. They just burned through two brigades trying to assault the city. As we've all seen the videos, they failed terribly, catastrophically. The 155th uh, uh, infantry, uh, Marine Infantry Brigade Naval Infantry Brigade is basically destroyed, will need to be reconstituted almost in full. Uh, the fourth is the same. Other elements have been badly mauled. The armor has been badly mauled to advance exactly uh, zero in this, in this front. This is, for me, one of the, if we needed any, one of the biggest proofs that Russia has a real issue with combined arms operations. They really, really uh, have trouble conducting what they're supposed to be doing, which is uh, using the four maneuver brigades they have in this region to press the Ukrainians forward. And again, yes, they're facing fortifications. Yes, that's all true. But they're getting pinned down. They're getting slaughtered by artillery. They're getting slaughtered by um, minefields. And actually, the the behavior we saw when approaching the minefields and when contact with minefields by uh, Russian uh, tank crews, which I won't complain, fine by me. But actually, uh, we what we see is lack of training. That tells us that Russian tankers are not exactly Marshal Zukov armored spearhead, but they're, uh, they lack a lot of training and uh, they lack a lot of uh, standard operating procedures. 
which actually is uh, something we can assess from um, the maneuver brigades being uh, reconstituted over time with uh, Mobix. Uh, Russia uh, has also uh, continued its uh, targeting of critical infrastructure. Now, the night strikes with KH-22 missiles are a bit more worrying because we need to introduce Patriot and some PT, the the air defense systems, as fast as we can because those missiles are supersonic and the current air defense has trouble engaging them, as we saw. The using of balloons to spot and uh, uh, then uh, bracket, let's put it this way, uh, Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian air defense so they can outmaneuver it is something that's uh, uh, very, uh, very interesting. I'd say that overall, uh, we've seen the beginning of the Russian offensive. And I'm not really sure what we are seeing. Because I cannot discern at this point yet a very clear strategic objective for the offensive. Yes, I can say, okay, they want Kupians, they want Lyman, but they always want Kupiansk and Lyman. That's sure, sure thing. Solviansk and Kramatorsk, yeah, I wish them the best of luck. The same guys have been trying to seize Bakhmut since back in May. And uh, here uh, in the south, yes, I understand they want to move the strategic front north, but Again, again, uh, there's no forces. And one thing I want to point out is the matter of initiative. But I'll get to that. Let's take some questions. Axel, what do you say? Yeah, I was just about to uh, get into this and say because you highlighted training. Now, and then you, you immediately swiveled over to uh, the fact that they may have goals, but they don't have essentially the means in terms of tactics and planning to achieve them. And then if they were to try to have these plans laid out and properly uh, prepared, they would probably lack the trained people to execute them. Because what we've been seeing both in Buladar as well as in certain of these attacks around Kravina and Svatova seems to be significant lack of training, significant lack of basic skills in terms of maneuver warfare. And as you as you said, there is very little evidence that they do combined arms well. Yes, they do massive infantry, uh, massive artillery shelling and then send waves of people forward. That in itself is not combined arms, not at all. No, actually, it's not. Uh, it's uh, That would be, I'd say, more uh, reminiscence, uh, more reminiscent to a certain um time to a certain time where uh probably uh, you'd see the i i read a very interesting article uh, and uh, i recommend it uh, heavily by Elliot Cohen and he says that military historians sometimes get this wrong because the russian army is seeing, is seemingly um operating like a 1918 army right you have masses of, of infantry, you have armor, the introduction of armor, you have air support, but you're not really combining this, right? You're using massive artillery, you're using tanks, uh, armor, and you're using waves of infantry. This is not how uh, Western uh, combined arms work. 
Western combined arms are uh, about pressing uh, the whole battlefield, the whole domains, the, the, the two domains, air and land, and even others, uh, by using simultaneously supported forces with uh, artillery and uh, deep strike fires, special operations, air power, and then uh, armor and uh, infantry to break uh, through uh, enemy lines. And it's about maneuver warfare. It's not about positional or attritional fights. Um, and, and again, uh, can you hear me well, Axel? Perfectly fine. Ah, okay, I had someone saying I was breaking up badly, but no. Okay, uh, again, as I was saying, um, this is not combined arms operations, okay? Will the Ukrainians be able to conduct combined arms operations? Yes, to an extent, because they will lack something that we use heavily on combined arms operations, which is the air power and the close air support to do it. We'll get to that, in my opinion, about the F-16s and why the F-16s and others, but uh, I don't think uh, we'll, we are not seeing combined arms operations. We are seeing uh, operations by armor, operations by infantry, operations by artillery, but not in a way that they are smashing through the defense. Okay, We're not seeing a blitzkrieg. We are seeing more like a 1918 uh, introduction of tanks and uh, infantry waves to the battlefield. Yeah, before we go to a question from Latin, which I think will drive probably uh, into exactly that direction. When in the past weeks we had our a little do little airing on, on weekends, we discussed that, especially also with Bill, our friend from Philadelphia, um, who's been uh, both in helicopters in the US Army, and then for what's it, three and a half decades, uh, dealt with nothing else than designing, developing, and uh, creating exactly those helicopter gunships for the U.S. Army and the likes, as well as Navy. And the interesting piece is now that the Ukrainians are lacking the capacity of having Cobras and Apaches to support um, their troops in maneuver warfare. They just don't have that kind of tool. They also lack um, any kind of uh, air suppression and close air support resulting out of it. And that uh, is, of course, uh, a consequence of not being able to extend and reach out for deeper strikes to remove and roll back the air defense cover of the Russian side. So it is integrated. It's exactly what you just said, that the Ukrainians are making do with what they have because they have not been given those pieces of kit which would unlock this. And that makes it tremendously difficult, doesn't it? Yes, and there's there's uh, an issue there that I'd like to point out, which is is uh, exactly that uh, a traditional, let's say, an armored cavalry brigade of the U.S. or um, I'm not an armor guy, but um, a maneuver element of the U.S. Army, for instance, has uh, at divisional level has deep fires with high Mars in MLRSs with attackums if need so. It has attack helicopters. It has support from the, the Air Force. So uh, it has artillery, it has armor, it has uh, infantry fighting vehicles and so on. So, and it has dismounted elements and then it has all the logistics, engineering, bridge laying, the whole shabam. 
we're not going to expect the Ukrainian military to fight as a, a unit uh, of the U.S. military would fight, not because they can't, but because the U.S. has been honing, honing that skill for years and years. And that's a very, uh, it takes quite some time to to be able to sustain that kind of operational tempo and the logistics that it involves is also uh, significant. But, uh, yes, attack helicopters would make a difference uh, because they can reach uh, into, they can support the operation easier. But that's pending on a su suppression of enemy air defense, a CAD and air superiority uh, envelope too, uh, which would require the fighters. And that's the big dilemma here because we're going to give the Ukrainians the, the land maneuver elements, but we're not integrating the air maneuver elements, which are, uh, as you say, critical to support the overall uh, operation, the overall combined maneuver. Now this... So no, no. It's Who's designing this? Who's designing this on our side? How, who on earth is making these decisions in terms of military logistics and procurement on our end to withhold what's absolutely necessary? If Ben Hodges, you, anyone who's ever been in this field can see this. There's, there's some, some issues with this. Okay, uh, Axel. It's, I, I understand it to an extent because, first of all, uh, the support group for Ukraine um, operating out of Rammstein is uh, doing a spectacular job but integrating um, this kind of uh, assets into uh, a, a new military is even time consuming and complex in, in peacetime in wartime it's because people need to understand regarding the, for instance, the helicopters. Even if we're going to introduce, then we have uh, several issues. First of all, are we introducing what? What helicopter are we going to introduce? The Tiger? There's not enough units to be meaningful in European stocks. Are we introducing, are, you, are we introducing the Apache? Well, we may have an issue with that also. Are we introducing the Cobra? Perhaps there's uh, enough units in the US to make a difference. Could you? Could we introduce the Tiger in the Cobra? We probably could. But first of all, it's two radical, uh, different helicopters, two different systems, two different builders, two different uh, manufacturing uh, companies. Then there's the whole logistics for this. Then there's the whole maintenance for this. And uh, then there's the weapon system for the helicopter. And again, we need to set up the whole maintenance uh, pipeline for this, the whole logistics pipeline for this, the whole crew pipeline for this. In this sense, it's, it's not only the problem with the helicopters, it's the same problem. And it's, it's probably easier than the aircraft. The problem is it remains the same, which is one thing is to fly the aircraft, another thing is to fight the aircraft. And to fight the aircraft, there's a whole number of things that should have happened. Now, could we have started it earlier and be halfway to that process? 
probably. Could we have started it in, let's say, September, October last year and be halfway through that process? Probably we could. But um, the, frankly, he, that's his political decision, most of all. But the strategy, the concept behind that seems whilst people are doing a grand, grand job in terms of doing the logistics under scarcity, I understand this and I, I support the argument. Uh, I wouldn't fault them for it. But it's like people doing the thing which they need to, which needs doing because they're overwhelmed by the pipeline of work. Whilst at the same time, some people should actually think about how to do things and what things to do. And that seems to be a bit, uh, give, uh, given a bit short shrift at the moment because that integrated approach as to how to build out this army to the point where it can actually do proper combined arms, even under the, under the constraints of warfare, that doesn't seem to be there. It, uh, it does not look from the outside looking in like a real integrated concept. Whilst on the one hand, yesterday, Lloyd Austin highlighted specifically that everything is about uh, creating capabilities. He, he clearly highlighted, just like you did, and I, I subscribe to that as well, that it's not just about platforms. Yes, you need the platforms, but what you want to develop is capabilities, skills, competencies, um, integration into uh, strategies and execution of tactics and the likes, so that you create comfort on the side of the Ukrainians to use whatever platforms and weapon systems they have very effectively so that they use, uh, that they, they make them count, that they make the ammunition count, that they make uh, the effort count and therefore sacrifice both less resources as well as, I mean, less capital resources as well as people. All completely conceded, no issue. However, nobody has told me yet in a comprehensively well-communicated format what the strategy is in order to upgrade Zaluzhny's army. Because uh, politically, because I think the problem here is the grand strategic design, right? Uh, we see it. We see that in the political political decision always informs military decisions. In democracies, the military are run by the civilians, so they respond to their political masters. No way around that, right? So no way around that means also that uh, the concept itself has been vaguely evolving. We must not forget that we had, we wasted months debating armor. We wasted months debating, actually, we wasted months debating IFTs. Then we wasted weeks debating what was obvious to complement the IFTs, which were the, the, the main battle tanks. Then, uh, before that, we had wasted uh, months talking about the 777s. The, the artillery system, the towed artillery, then the HIMARS, then the, ML, the MLRS, then the IFTs, then, because the problem is, we started with some people, uh, some chancelleries in Europe thinking, well, in, the Russians are probably going to win this in a week, to, well, the Ukrainians held, now what? Then to, well, we need to give weapons. What weapons do we have to give? But the Americans need to, to come to the table. Then the Americans come to the table. 
then uh, well we can supply artillery then uh, well we can supply HIMARS then the whole Atacams debate so we've been keeping Ukraine we've been giving the Ukraines the necessary for the, the fight they have but we have not given them what they need for the fight ahead in a sense we're in the, stuck in that paradigm of we're fighting yesterday's war in the sense that last week's war right we're not fighting next month's war it, okay no no then the question is is the fact that um, we have I, I have no issue with uh, civil leadership vis-a-vis military leadership on the contrary this is completely fine in democracies but we have an intermediate step specifically in the united states and that is the national security council and the joint chiefs of staff as a sort of say a bridge to the armed forces or a consolidation of the armed forces, which is unique because if you look at the um, setup which General Eisenhower had and the setup which his counterpart, um, Admiral King, had um, during the Second World War, they were in a different position. They were able to make military leadership count and they were able to make decisions. Yes, they had to... They had to uh, Marshall, uh, and Marshall, so to say, was the interlink. He was, if you think about it, both a national security advisor as well as the leader of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if you were to look at the role he actually fulfilled. Nowadays, we have NSC members who are not necessarily beholden to the military and who may not have been as qualified in military terms because they think of all the military might in political terms. Now, that thinking in political terms should be simply the prerogative of the president and not some advisor. The advisor as to military matters should be a military man because only he can express what actually makes sense. If I were to select someone <laughs> such as, I'm sorry, no, seriously, the advisor should be a military mm-hmm. advisor and not uh-huh. a security advisor. Don't you think? No. Okay. Convince <laughs> no, me. Convince me. First of all, why, why, uh, why, should, why should the military matter not be uh, advised? But I, I don't mind having a security advisor. Don't get me wrong, but I would put them on par. I would have a political advisor on uh, security uh, matters in relation to other nations. I would have a military advisor on par with them. But please tell me. Now, what I think is when we're referring <clears throat> to the U.S. national security, national command authority structure, I'd say that the National Security Council is a very good body. It um, brings together both the military stakeholders, the intelligence community stakeholders, and you need, there's a fine bureaucratic and department balance that needs to have a political figure ahead of it, right? Because if you have a mili- the military will advise on options, will advise the principals, and will advise the president, of course, on what's the the best course of action. The intelligence community also will exactly do the same. You need to have someone that integrates that with the administration's politics and policy. Politics and policy, the both things, both sides. So in that sense, if uh, you'd have a civilian figure to do that and a political appointee. Then you have a military appointee and then you have the intelligence community 
would come over and say, hey, man, come on, what about us, right? Because we are Homeland Security, we are the CIA, we are, the FBI has its own roles also in intelligence. We are the 17 intelligence agencies or 18 the U.S. has. What about them? Then you need, okay, they have the, the director of national intelligence that would have the same statue as the other two. Uh, and you get a, dif- a dysfunctional uh, National Security Council. I think well, you, the architecture... You have three voices. Are three voices. Let me interrupt you. Apologies, Nuno, because you laid it out so clearly. So you have three voices. You have the DNI. Then you have someone who is actually really considering... Let, let's say Mr. Sullivan is considering matters on a national security basis in terms of the, inter, the overall political game. And then mm-hmm. you have a military leader. So the mm-hmm. Joint Chiefs of Staff, one DNI, and mm-hmm. this guy. So you have three voices. That's not difficult. That is your own little National Security Council, but it, um, it's three of yes. them. Yes. Yes, but then you have all all the other principles of the agencies too, right? You have the Treasury. You have a number of other agencies. And don't forget an important an important aspect of this, which is. Uh, someone, uh, this is all uh, national. There's uh, there's the need to integrate uh, this with what the President of the United States and the administration wants to achieve in terms of policy and politics. And politics is sometimes also internal. It's also electoral cycles. Also a number of things that influence. It's also budgets. And policy is also uh, allies, foreign relations, it's also the State Department, it's also a number of of other, uh, the State Department is one of the other agencies present there. And so there needs to be a figure that integrates this and presents options to the president. We can debate if that guy should have military experience or intelligence community experience or both, or guy or girl. We could we could debate a number of things about Mr. Sullivan, but you fight the war with the Abu, you you fight the jihad with the Abu you have, not the Abu you want. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I'd prefer the Condoleezza Rice as National Security Council in a in a period like this. Sure, sure, Condi would do a better job. Sure, but Susan Rice would do an awful job. This would go nowhere, for instance. So, in that sense, Mr. Sullivan does what Mr. Sullivan does. I, I don't agree with his exactly with his um, political direction or uh, we, with his political view on the conflict. I think we should be a bit more aggressive. But frankly, the U.S. isn't my concern. My because the U.S with its issues in internal politics and all that, has been doing its job. And it has been doing its job fairly well. It's the main backer of military support. Is The European Union and the US together are on par in terms of aid. But I worry more about some countries in Europe which are, redundant, are uh, having doubts in others that don't have an, a national security process at all. Right. Uh, I was debating with a good friend, which was also a friend of this space, like uh, 
which is uh, Thomas, uh, w- uh, one of these days, Thomas Steiner. And we were discussing exactly this. For instance, the Germans have no chief of the general staff. There's no general staff in Germany. Germany had to fight a war tomorrow. They'd have to pull a, a wartime staff together. That might be it a is, problem. It is astonishing. It is astonishing. I agree with you. And it, it is right? a major deficiency. Yeah. And there's no sec- national security process in place. Because we can always debate if, okay, the national security process in place in the U.S. could be better, could be worse, could be. But there's one. There's one in France. There's one in the U.K. But I'll give you the Portuguese case. There's none. None. The prime minister doesn't get briefed on this. Only if he asks. The guy had to create a group within the uh, the Council of Ministers presidency, which is a, for a, 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 a sort of ministry that revolves around the prime minister's office that briefs him on the matters of national security because he doesn't really get briefed by the intelligence services, both of them. This is and then exists. The president doesn't get any briefs because he gets his briefs through the military, the military part of the. Uh, it's called the president's military staff, which is one guy or two guys, or a number of guys. This is a, a completely dysfunctional idea of na- a, an unexisting national security process. And you want a case of this? And we debated this, Axel. The leopards. First, the minister, the minister of foreign affairs, well, comes and says, "We're going to give four leopards to Ukraine." Then, the minister of defense comes and says, "Well, I'm not really sure. I might be only participating in training and doing training." Okay. Then, after uh, everybody finding out that from the 37 leopard 2A6 Portugal has. Only about four are operational. And uh, Mr. Scholz and well, Mr. Scholz and well, cajoling the Portuguese government in saying, come on, man, we need to form a battalion of 2A6s, give us some, and we'll pay for the refurbishment of the others, I, I suspect. Then what happened is the prime minister comes and basically... Uh, steps over the authority of everyone and says in a in a trip to the Central African Republic and our forces there says we're going to give three Leopard 2A6s to, to Ukraine. This, this is an unexistent national security process and Portugal is not alone in this, right? So I can debate the US process, but the US has a, a functioning process. So does the British or do the German, so do the, the French, right? Yeah, because all three of them had to deal with expeditionary force requirements since the Second World War, and they all three have continued to develop their own national strategic culture. We can debate the various cultures. We can debate whether the Axis, London, uh, Washington is more important, which I would deem it is, uh, as opposed to any kind of interlinkage with Paris. But still, you are absolutely correct. 
these three countries take national security absolutely seriously. Everybody else has been leaning back and uh, hoping that the Americans will do it. I would add maybe Finland to it as well, because Finland does have it. In Sweden, in Sweden, in Sweden. Yeah, Sweden, I'm not as familiar with how integrated they actually are. I hear a lot of good but from Finland, my friends. But Finland, yes, Finland, definitely, yeah. definitely the Finns. Yeah. I'd say the so, Finns, the Polish have uh, made great strides in this, but the rest, uh, the Italians, the Italians, don't, never forget the Italians. Because the Italians may have a, a little bit of a complex systems, but the fact remains that when they need to get their act together and intervene and do stuff and conduct operations, and they've conducted a lot of stuff, a lot of operations. People don't speak about the Italians. The Italian military has been doing a lot. And they still do it. They still keep a steady program of shipbuilding. They keep a steady program of uh, modernization. So don't discount the Italians taking this very seriously because for the Italians, it's a matter of industry too, of course, right? It's important. Let's go to the audience, Axel. What do you say? Yeah, I was just about to say, before we go further on into the doldrums of and the depths of uh, how to structure national security policy, because by the way, this is, a, this is all your fault in a good way because uh, you extracted us from the granularity of the battlefield and back into how strategy actually impacts how this is being carried out, how this war is being carried out. And I'm, I'm hopeful that our audience will reflect that as well. So we have Latin first, then Lexicon, then Zeitfox, and then Daryl. So Latin, let's go with you first. Hey, thanks, Axel. And uh, Nuno, um, obrigado por estar aqui. It's always great to hear you. And yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, two questions. If, if I can, Axel, it'll be a follow-up. Uh, but To your point about combined um, arms operations and uh, some of the serious doubts that we've seen through this conflict of Russia's ability to do that. And I, of course, I tend to focus on the aviation side of those kind of operations. But there's one very, I want to get really granular with a question for you about one particular capability um, that, that so far I think has really been lacking on the Russian side, and I think will be important for any kind of close air support that they'll be able to offer their ground forces now in, in offensive operations. And that is targeting, and specifically, and with your special forces background, I'm sure you're familiar with this, is um, forward air controllers and people, people on the ground to um, identify and designate targets. And I wonder if you've heard or get a sense of um, the Russian capability in that area, because my sense is it's not very good. My sense is exactly the same as yours, and that's a very good question, Latin. Obrigado. Uh, the thing is, um, for their controllers are um, not only a key element of any special operations task unit, of course, uh, you may have it Differently, uh, you may combine the joint terminal air controller. You may embed a, term, a joint terminal air controller with uh, a special operations unit, or you may embed the joint terminal air. You may have people in the special operations unit that are joint uh, for their controller qualified. There's both systems, and um, they work uh, both. Both work um, perfectly well. Perfectly well. Uh, I'd say that we have 
two different um, issues here. First of all, the forward air controllers of I don't know how what units do forward air control and how the the Russian system are is embedded with forward air control. But one thing I can assure you, it's probably uh, done. It may have uh, it. Well, to be to be frank, there's some special operations units from the Russian side that embedded joint terminal air controllers in Syria, for instance. But the thing here is, in a conflict of this size, you need uh, maneuver elements embedded with joint terminal air controllers. If I, do, do I make myself clear with this? Um, I'm starting to, yeah, I'm starting to understand, but um, can, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd say that they don't have uh, forward air control with the maneuver elements on the ground. And I'm not really sure how they're, I'm not really sure how the process of bringing forward uh, their frontal aviation regiments and, and making them strike targets or, or striking, uh, how they're basically not, let me rephrase that, how the targeting process for the Russians is done. Because traditionally, um, the targeting process here uh, in, the, in the West, in Western forces, is very focused on the units on the ground with that specific capability, and then uh, an air control, um, an air management center that will uh, task units to support each individual efforts. Right? I'm not seeing in the Russians centralized system. I'm not seeing that in in this in Latin. One thing that's been boggling my mind for quite a bit here is. Where's all the frontal aviation for this war? All of those frontal aviation regiments that are on paper that are supposed to guarantee to debate to discuss air superiority with NATO over the European theater. Where's all that? Well, the fact there, are very few, there are very few uh, flight hours, and therefore they're not flying, are they? And they have a lack of of. Uh, pilots, and 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 the, the the issue here is the the air side of Russian operations has been front has frankly been dismal from the start. They have not sustained. They have not create. They have not ran a, a suppression of enemy air defense campaign. They have no air superiority over the theater of Ukraine, and. Their maneuver elements have problems tasking air fires. And that is a key element why they do not conduct proper uh, combined arms operations, even if in their side they have all the assets to do that, right? So uh, I believe that's one of their uh, key weaknesses. But Latin... I'd like to hear your opinion on this because you clearly know the stuff. So go ahead. Then. I, I wouldn't add much to what you just said. I would say that this is a, a glaring uh, problem that, that we've seen from the beginning. We know that the Ukrainians have uh, better targeting 
capability on the ground, probably with their maneuver elements because of the NATO training and influence that they've had since 2014. In the and the ISR uh, they have. Say again? In the ISR they have. The ISTAR oh. they have. Right. Okay. Uh, but th this shows that the, I mean, I just see it as a liability on the Russian side that um, will hamper any of these grand plans they have for uh, for offensive action in probably, like, like you said, already underway um, and, and in the next few weeks. Um, can, can I just ask a, a follow-up question, Axel, quickly? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, ask. Okay. Um, talking about helicopters, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in this camp now after the last Ramstein meeting that I'm really focusing on what the Ukrainians are going to be able to do with what they have. And this is a kind of a related question to what we, we were just talking about a minute ago. So it seems to me that, so, so when I see the, the, the Russian close air support, and we've seen some greater losses recently of SU-25s, right, that frontal aviation that you were talking about, and yep. that it looks as though they're under more pressure, probably from Moscow, to make something happen. Um, big question mark over how effective they can be. On the Ukrainian side, um, these, these close air support missions, and we just had some new video today, we see them regularly, of these helicopter and sometimes SU-25 uh, operations with, you know, at very low level pop up and uh, and launch unguided rockets at mm -hmm. targets that I think right now could be very effective because that's not a precision strike, that's a, a mass strike that I think that's would an be area effective. strike. It's an area strike. Right. So that that could be effective as far as I know against the kind of especially highly unorganized, undisciplined infantry assaults that that the that the uh, Russians are mounting. That, so that part of it, do you think, makes sense? Yes, I think it makes sense. Because that, that tactic, if you're saying uh, uh, Ukrainians are doing that because they basically fly a very low level, then they pop up, they launch unguided rockets in mass, and then they go back down to avoid uh, the proliferation of men, portable air defenses, and other air defense systems in theater. That works so to, to an extent against mostly... Um, manned against infantry basically because even armor depends on the mass of fires you're talking to depends on what you're what you're seeing depends on a number of things but but we have been seeing quite a bit of this kind of mm -hmm. uh, un, um, on unsupported sides. infantry assault right yeah on both sides and we've uh, on both sides I mean the the tactics of flying low popping up to to, to fire uh, on the mass infantry assault we've seen the Russians doing it time and time again. I, I still believe they have a problem uh, uh, with, they're starting to have a problem with both artillery shells and uh, even their armor, right? Because unlike what some people think, um, and this is something I know that a lot of people commenting on this war say that, well, the Russians have this, this, this reserve, X reserve. X. Yeah, they can have all those reserves. But what you're going to do exactly with tanks that date back to the 1980s and they haven't been kept properly for 40 years, for 30 years, for 25 years? What exactly are you going to do this with them? You hmm. need some time to get them in shape, right? Because if things are not maintained, even the highest tech gear like the Leopard, I'll give you the Portuguese example. We have 37 Leopard 2 A6. Right, you have four of them operational. There's probably another fourteen that can be made operational easy. 
and the others are not really easy to 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 do right and this is 37 main battle tanks state of the art main battle tanks right lack of maintenance lack of resources so what you're going to do with some nine T62s from back in the day right that's that's something people need to consider so if I can just quickly close the, go, the thought about, about, about the helicopters with... Go ahead, go ahead. Nobody would like to see more modern Western gunship helicopters for the Ukrainians more than I. But we are where we are, right? And they... So yeah. do you feel that with, with the limit, limited resources that they have, using the airframes they have, that that kind of um, tactic that we were just discussing, especially given that, they're, that their targeting is probably better, so they're able to respond to what ground forces need right away. Um, do you think that it's still that we should not discount the effectiveness of what they can do with what they have, especially in the short term, the next few weeks of trying to blunt these these uh, offensives that the Russians are going to try and mount? Yes, I think I think that the, it's pointless to discuss uh, helicopter gunships, Western helicopter gunships, at this point. Uh, because we're not going to integrate that, as you well know, uh, within the next six months. It's impossible. Or it's very hard to do effectively. And uh, the thing is, I would say we need to leverage whatever the Ukrainians have in terms of uh, gunships uh, with the assets they have in terms of airframes. And, and we may be able to leverage that also through artillery and deep strike fire. There's uh, because helicopters in this are not only helicopters provide obviously the necessary air cover in depth, and they also provide transport, uh, tactical transport or even operational transport in depth. And they combine the two really well. They can uh, basically hunt armor uh, and infantry uh, effectively on the battlefield. But but uh, we are we are where we are. We are going to have the Ukrainians will have to to use the airframes they have. We should uh, basically try to amplify those air, the number of those airframes by buying whatever we can from other providers in terms of the the, the same the Mi eights, the Mi seventeens, the Mi twenty fours, and what that and what not. And we need to. Um, leverage that with some more uh, artillery deep fires the best we can. I'd say that's probably the possible balance here because, as I said, I'd love to see some Apaches going at it or some Tigers going at it with Russian armor because that's what they've been all designed for. But honestly, um, I don't see that uh, being um, being um, a thing we can do easily in the next uh, few months. I hope that answers the question. Muito obrigado. And with that, we'll go to Lexicon, who's also been patiently waiting. Lexicon, you have a question. Yeah, I do. Um, I wanted to ask, just still on specifically the hardware, so we know they're not getting much of anything that flies very soon. <clears throat> so, you know, way back in the beginning, very early on when uh, Polish, Poland uh, famously wanted to give, I think, 30 MiG-29s or maybe a mix of 29s and 28s, and the Americans would have nothing of, none of it. So now, 
mean, and that's what Ukraine has is fly what they fly. I guess they do SEAD with those. I'm not sure. I don't think they have many Sukhois, but would it not make it be useful? I mean, to give them these thirty or other MIGs is is that a problem, or does anybody know? Do you know the reasons why it's not being done, or that it is? Those, <laughs> those, those MIGs ended up in Ukraine. Okay, they're all there. Those. They're all there. They ended up in Ukraine, apparently, as they went as spare parts. There was some shenanigans around that business. Um, that business was pro- that business early on was basically, and I said this in the space back then. It's basically the Polish government jumping the gun. Uh, yeah. Borrell, the Joseph Borrell, the EU uh, External Action Service boss, the EU Foreign Minister, quote unquote, jumping the gun. It's uh-huh. the American, and everybody turning to the Americans say, "But yeah, yeah, we're all going to supply these means, but you supply them." And of the U.S. said, "Yeah, we're not going to supply this through Rammstein." There was some political shenanigans about that, uh, but that those MiGs ended up back there. From all I know, uh, eventually they got up to to Ukraine, um, and we've been basically the West has been buying uh, every spare part we can find for Russian planes. Um, basically a lot of places around the world uh, to keep those MiGs, to keep those airframes uh, flying. Okay, good. And so they do have at least what, they, or more than what they had at the beginning in terms of MiGs, let's say. Mm-hmm. Well, they have, not, they have um, losses. They have losses. Yes, they have they losses. They have losses, losses, but what I mean is we've been able to maintain that that and be, make up for the losses. To maintain, we've been able to maintain the degree of effectiveness and in in we've been able to maintain and the Ukrainians have been able to maintain a flying air force in the face of Russia. Yeah. So yeah. that's a victory in itself. Absolutely. And just to follow up lately, that we have seen a bit of a chuck off and uh, Chuck Farr tells us about the number of SEAD, well, the number of sorties that have been flown, and it was always from two to 14, 12 or 14, and then it sort of decreased for a while. It's still, it's hard to know. I don't know if we ask it every time we see him, but do you know if the level of these sorties has been able to increase with the mounting Russian pressure? I'd with, say with... that it's around the same, a bit lower. There may be... That may be uh, a little lower, maybe also indicate that some Ukrainian pilots left the country for other places. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Understood. Thank you. Okay. All righty. Daryl. No, sorry. Zeit, folks. I apologize. <laughs> Ken, can you hear us? Ken, three, two, one. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Thank you for <laughs> okay. taking me, Axel. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, I'd like to add on Latin, who uh, made the statement which I which which I would like to rephrase. Uh, that we are more interested in what Ukraine can do with the existing stuff and which the things they have now, and and less which the future plans. Yeah. Uh, 
And there are two uh, discussions in U.S. Uh, in, 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 in U.S. advisories on sectors, foreign policies and military. And I would like to know what my opinion of the space is on, on, on this, because what, what these people say is that they believe that the current tanks, Western tanks, yeah, and the proof that these tanks can break through uh, fortified Russian defense positions on the one hand in combination with extended fire range that means uh, ammunition which is able to reach and break uh, the Kerch bridge that these two elements may uh, provide a substantial uh, leverage on the on the on the uh, negotiation position and may even be strong enough that uh, the Russians are retreating from from Crimea without any you know future steps like uh, providing uh, providing the F F fourteen and 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 this air power and and, and this additionally uh, 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 more co even more complicated stuff. Yeah? Uh, so that's my question, um, and with uh, regard to the to the to the position of the space i uh, i believe i believe that that now uh, the uh, focus on the future possibilities like like like, like airplanes and all this actually is like damaging the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine matter a little bit or the Ukraine mission, because it's, uh, I feel that from the public perspectives, yeah, uh, people now do not quite understand yeah, uh, the need for the, for air superiority and these things. And there is the idea creating that, you know, now they got this and they want this and they always want more and, and candy and, and, and let's wait what they are doing with, 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 with now what, what we have. Yeah? And uh, that's my two questions. So my first question is, uh, in particular, uh, in particular, as um, uh, uh, the gentleman uh, brought it up, uh, uh, what are this, is that a reasonable uh, discussion uh, that these combinations of um, Western tanks and, 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 and larger reach, that this could be a, a significant uh, change uh, already with, without any future steps. That's the first question. The second question, isn't it the case that, that, that now the focus should be more what we can do and what we can expect from the current, let's say, uh, decision of Western tanks, which is very meaningful. The Abraham has a substantial uh, 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 a substantial uh, logistics, which is, as we all know, uh, comes from Poland, where these uh, Abraham's uh, uh, capacities are in existence, not in Ukraine. Uh, so, um, what is the opinion? Uh, these two questions, thank you very much. Huh? Well, my opinion on that is I, I actually agree with that and we need to focus on what the Ukrainians have right now uh, available. Uh, I think the, the, the armor element, uh, first of all, the, the Abrams will be built. It will be the M1A2, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it will be built. It's not, uh, not going to be supplied until the end of this year. 
and it, they're going to be built by General Dynamics straight from the factory to the battlefield. Uh, so the Ukrainians will be without those uh, M1s for quite some time. Uh, the main brunt of, of the, the main battle tank effort will be, of course, the, the Leopard 2, the Leopard 1, and uh, the 14 Challenger 2 that the British are already training the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian military in uh, Great Britain. That's one. Uh, will these tanks uh, be significant? Yes, but more uh, uh, they're more significant when you add to them additional artillery, uh, additional HIMARS, additional M270s, and uh, towed artillery. And when you add also main, uh, robust uh, IFE package like the Bradley, the Barder, and uh, the Strikers. With that said, and even uh, when you add also the MAX-10RC, which, by the way, the first 14 of them are already on their way to Ukraine with respective crews. So when we, you add all this, this makes a substantial force. Will it be sufficient? Well, as I was saying a while ago in this space, combined arms operations are about what the name states, combined arms, air well, the several domains that we can uh, exert in a battlefield, in this case, air, uh, space, cyber, and ground forces, and um, uh, conduct operations that are uh, meant to uh, destroy the enemy as quickly, as effectively, and as fast as we can. We are, uh, the Ukrainians are crippled. No, there's no way around that on the air front. So we have to leverage that with what they have, whatever we can uh, procure from other countries and uh, make up that with some deep strike fires like the HIMARS and the M270s, uh, even providing um, the ground launch, the ground launched small diameter bomb for the, the launchers and then uh, also provide uh, eventually the army tactical missile that will enable strategic reach. All of this is a process. All of this takes some time. Should we be discussing planes and helicopters? Yes, definitely. Because that discussion is also about cruise missiles and it's also about standoff weapons and it's also about the, the short-range ballistic missiles like the attacker. Um so that discussion needs to keep on going and we'll see the results, but the results take time. These things take time to train. These things take time to prepare. Logistics for this is um, a hell of a nightmare. I think people sometimes don't realize the gigantic, enormous, absolutely astonishing uh, world-beating logistic operation that's being set up. That's already underway, actually. So this is, we have reached a point in this war where this is about key engagements, which means that it's about funneling man and material to the front as fast as you can. This is a race. It's, it's as much an industrial race and a logistics race than it is um, a contest of arms, right? So I I actually... 
we have exponential more uh, uh, industrial capacity than Russia, but we have been slowly globalizing it. And I'll give you the example of Germany. Not to Germ- bash the German government, that's my, not my point, but um, what uh, industry says is if anyone procures them, we can produce 600 armored vehicles a year. Right? That's not happening because no one procured them. There's the capacity. So that's also part of the the issue uh, at hand in, in play. I hope that answers the question. Alrighty, let's go to Daryl. Daryl, go ahead. Okay, I'm I'm here. I'm just waiting on this message on my phone to stop. Um, okay, I want to go to the. Uh, political side of this um, when we were talking about you know sending um, weapons over where it seemed like part of it is in our house um, you know the administration um, one of the things that was made in one of the uh, speeches that uh, Biden gave and and one of the answers he gave was how you know he did not want to basically upset our European partners. And I think that that has a little bit to do with what's what may happen, may be going on um, in that he wants possibly there to be leadership in Europe, which I, I don't think anybody disagrees with. But there's also the issue of some um, age-old conflicts, um, some distrust, even among some of the um, uh, uh, coalition force uh, uh, nations. And when I say that is, for example, we were talking about you know the situation in Moldova and where Ukraine offered to send help uh, if needed. Well, then you have the Romanians being you know, getting a little up, getting hot under the collar about that. And it goes back, as we, as it was revealed, it goes back in history, you know, of some some issues and bad blood that went on uh, ages ago. And those type of uh, relationships, I believe, still exist. And, the, and until some of those things are, you know, assuaged, we may, there may be issues with some of the trying to get Ukraine some aid. Now, I'm not saying that's total, you know, total, but it could be. There are issues, there are nations that want aircraft, but if we send that aircraft to Ukraine, they don't understand that there's a war on. They just want theirs. And those type of relationship issues, I think, may be part of the problem with how uh, some of the aid has de- developed and why certain aid wasn't given until certain other 
other nations have given this, that, or the other, and there was some horse trading going on. And I think that that can be well, part of the problem with what we're seeing. Well, as a good friend of mine says, Daryl, international politics is not about rational, cold calculations. It's a crime of passion, right? Uh, it's about, <laughs> it sometimes looks like um, some bad blood. Well, first of all, welcome to European politics. We love you. Um, it's, uh, there's uh, age-old, uh, uh, millennial-old in some cases, uh, rifts in Europe uh, around our politics and some of other stuff as we have done uh, multiple times. Um, also, uh, that's one of the reasons for the European Union. Uh, overall, overall, to be frank, the US has basically used 47 billion last year. Europe uh, has used 51, so we're on par with that. Some others have put up around 14. These numbers are from the Kiel Institute for uh, world economy but that said well there's a number of things going on here uh, first of all uh, there's obviously some tension between uh, different NATO allies in different uh, venues I'd say uh, one of the tensions of course was we had to drag the German government kicking and screaming every time that's one that's not Exactly, uh, because they're all the the SPD is taken over by Russians and all that. Yes, the Russians have some influence in the SPD, but uh, it's most of all because there's 70 years where we've told the Germans, well, never do that again. And uh, they believed it firmly. So it's nothing short of uh, miraculous that we've been able to... Uh, drag them kicking and screaming to do uh, what uh, to, to make changes in politics they made they haven't made enough some of them are not yet materialized but we'll see they need some internal reform in terms of the, the national security apparatus of Germany too but the French for instance have their own politics too they've now switched to the we'll fight with Ukraine to the bitter end mode which is good because the French usually all, uh, tr throw you under the bus or for their interests or they will fight to you with you to the bitter end. They're now in the part, will fight with Ukraine to the bitter end, which is a very good news. And then uh, beyond all that, we have the Italians, we have uh, the Spanish, we have the Polish. And beyond all that, we also have the supranational level of the European Union, which actually which actually, and I'll say this, having no mandate in defense at all, because the European Union has no mandate in defense, the defense attributions it has are uh, skimpy at best. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, uh, in the end, uh, European, uh, the Commission in particular, uh, came forward uh, and stepped up and pressured a lot of... In, went sometimes above its mandate, well beyond its mandate, actually, and did some very impressive things. And 
proves again that the power of a federal state. But that's a whole different discussion. So, yes, the U.S. administration has to deal with this um, sometimes fractional uh, European politics. This has an impact. Yes, it has. It has had less impact than I thought initially, but it has an impact. The other impact, Daryl, is the simple fact that there's not that much to give, right? And that's an area where I haven't seen the necessary change, except by the Poles, the Swedes, the Finns, uh, the Danish even, and uh, the Italians. But there's not that much to give. There's the stocks are not deep, uh, and uh, we configured our militaries to fight insurgencies and limited uh, brawls. Let's not call it major wars, but limited wars, let's put it this way. And in places where we have air superiority and not a near-peer fight, and now uh, we have to redo that. Uh, and that's it's also, in a certain sense, it's also the inheritance, even for the U.S. military, it's also uh, our uh, inheritance from 20 years of the global war on terror, right? All of a sudden, uh, we have uh, the ugly face of industrial war in our, uh, in our backyard. And uh, when we configured ourselves for low uh, um, <clears throat> low intensity and unconventional warfare conflicts and irregular conflicts in, in counterinsurgency. So there's an in, there's several sides of this. There's an inheritance of the global war of terror. There's um, this investment in the military. There's a number of things that need to to get in place, and this takes sometimes, obviously, in political terms. There's there's no way around that, and politics gets in the way everywhere. I hope that answers the question, Daryl. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean it's it's just confirming what I'm saying is that the politics of Europe kind of held up what could could be there, but of course, too, uh, you know, I for me. To hear that nations have have uh, equipment that is not ready, uh, that just seems, you know, why? Why do you have hangar queens um, in the majority of your force? You know, that's Be- because because lack of maintenance backs back because lack of maintenance, lack of spare part contracts, lack of funding lack of will, and because you had senior staff in the military lying to politicians and uh, instead of planning for the future, going after the the near-present fight, which was counterinsurgency and special operation. You know, it just, it just, yeah, it just doesn't bring, you know, a, a level of security to think of you know, if we had gotten into a NATO had gotten into a real brawl, that we oh, really man, would be, we'd be in a we'd be in a very tough position. Frankly, exactly. uh, and, and we'd be in a very my, tough and that's position. My point. Right. 
Right, and that's yes, exactly yes, yes. my point. I, I remember uh, uh, you should watch. You should watch. The, I, I, rec I always recommend this because it was a herald of times to come. You should watch the last speech of Robert Gates, the U.S. Defense Secretary, uh, to the NATO uh, Council. Uh, when his, uh, his farewell address to NATO Council, you should read it. Because Bob Gates was dead on the money. At the point he says, well, our problem as NATO is we intervened in Libya and we in the US let the Europeans run the operation and all of a sudden an air command center that was supposed to handle the air battle over Europe was shortly stopped and everybody in Europe ran out of bombs And among other things, and he warns us Europeans very clearly that um, he is one of the last major cold warriors in the in the U.S. national security apparatus, and uh, that uh, for the future uh, the U.S. would be focused on Asia. And honestly. Frankly, the U.S. national strategy, or the documents of the U.S. national strategy, the national uh, uh, strategy of the U.S. has been since the days of Barack Obama, since the, the Obama presidency, a pivot to Asia. But then ISIS, now Ukraine. But the U.S. military wants to pivot to Asia. And there's no way around that. And that means that Europe as a major partner, both economic, political, and uh, security, needs to step up. It's, it's that. And this war just shines a light on some of our problems. Thanks, it's so fun. By the way, it's so funny that you quoted uh, and referred to that. Um, I'll put it in the nest because it is memorable. And... Um, It's an excellent speech. I never forgot that speech. I never forgot that speech because it was premonition, premonition. The same guy who told, uh, I don't know, I don't remember who the president was that looked into Mr. Vladimir Putin's eyes and saw a glimpse of hope. And then Bob Gates came and said, well, I looked into the man's Bush. eyes. And I, yeah, I looked into the man's eyes and I saw the same KGB stone cold killer I've ever known my entire life. So, yeah, Bob Gates was right. <laughs> uh, I, love, I, I also recommend highly that you read a book by Bob Gates' Memories uh, Duty, which is a massive, uh, well-written book. I loved it. So there's some some sense to that. So, Waypoint, you've been there, my man, waiting and waiting. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. I had to drop down very quickly and uh, go to the uh, to the men's. But um, yeah, um, you were talking earlier on about the um, about obviously aircraft and um, hel helicopters, um, and I can say a little bit about the Tiger or Tigre or Eurocopter. Now, um, Tiger, I'm... Tiger, man, it's the Tiger. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's it was actually when uh, Spain was meant to be getting it was meant to be called the Tigre, uh, and um, and the French, but um, they 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 then decided obviously on Tiger, but still. Um, but 180 of them were made. Now um, Germany um, had them out in um, in um, Afghanistan, 
And um, I know that uh, they had a massive, massive problems. They're expensive to uh, to uh, to keep uh, to keep in the air servicing them, and uh, with parts, they had ma major problems with actually getting parts. And they were actually taking tigers apart here in Germany to send the parts out to uh, Afghanistan to actually have them capable that they were in the air capable to actually fly. Um, so same in Mali. Same in Mali. Same in Mali. Sorry, the same happened in Mali. Yeah. So, uh, the, so the, the the chances are the, now they're, they're obviously talking about doing an upgrade now as a Tiger uh, Tiger One Point Two. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to call it. Um, but there's there's an upgrade program, but um, there's the, um, Australia has also got Tiger, but um, they've already, as far as I know, they're opting for Apache Age Sixty Four. It looks like Germany are actually going to um, go opt for that as well. It's not exactly through, but uh, that's what um, that's what um, I've been reading over the past. I don't know, uh, roughly about a year that I've been reading and listening about that. Um, so I can't really see that being an option. And obviously, I mean, they could obviously maybe put some together and send them out there, but I can't really see that being, especially then having problems with the parts. So I can't see that taking place. Uh, the other part you're talking about, because I actually did FACing in, in the Gulf and um, and the, the from what I, I mean, obviously I, I don't see much of Battlefield. It's only what you're reading and uh, obviously some videos and, and, and uh, Battlefield plans and stuff like this. But when I look at the Russians, I mean, I really possibly, I personally can't see uh, the the, uh, the Russians working um, an FAC system at all uh, with the way they actually fight their their battles. Whereas the Ukrainians, I can't, well, the, the Russians, obviously artillery and then going with the waves of people or sending uh, uh, troops in there, uh, whether armor or uh, IFE or whatever, uh, um, they, they, they seem to have completely the wrong tactic to actually uh, use uh, uh, FACs. Whereas, obviously, with the, the Ukrainians, it was a completely different um, organization altogether because they obviously op they, they seem to be or they appear to be fighting more like European uh, troops with the combined arms and um, obviously having um, like recce troops. They're obviously they use well, I mean, they're using um, they're using uh, drones, but also uh, you know people who are actually forwards in the battlefield looking at the situation, assessing what's there. Um, it's not just actually getting aircraft into the area in general, but also assessing what sort of danger is there for the pilots actually getting into the flying into the into the into the kill zone. Um, and at my job was actually trying to keep the aircraft out of the kill zone to, to, to not have them getting mixed up, that they could actually fight. Uh, they could actually fire from further back and they didn't have to get, obviously get into it into a danger zone like we're seeing all the time that uh, helicopters keep on getting taken out and all this sort of thing by obviously by, um, uh, you know, forward forward uh, uh, forward troops from the Ukrainians that are spotting these aircraft and then, to, and then obviously taking them out. And uh, that's uh, that's that's the job of, of, of the FAC or you know, SOF uh, that they get into the, they get they get mixed into the battle uh, the battle at the front, have a look at assess it. What can I use? What can I bring forward? And I can imagine if they were to get um, Cobra, excellent piece of kit. If they were to get some Cobras, maybe some Apaches um, to actually go with them. Like you said, I think six six months a year. I mean, I can't see it really being before that. Then uh, that's an absolute. That's obviously an amazing option for them to actually to to use something like that. But um, what do you think about that? The way I the, the assessment I I got. Thanks. I think you're dead correct. I think you're dead correct on it. I mean, the the Apaches, as, as I've said, I don't see any. Uh, I, I don't see any introduction of gunships anytime soon. Uh, the Tiger has the problems you've mentioned. Uh, it's uh, difficult to source. It's difficult to maintain. It's hard to maintain. It has a number of problems. Um, there's not enough airframes, so we can supply Ukraine. And regarding the 
sorry, the, um, for their control element, you're absolutely correct. It's it's all it's about striking the target, but making sure the aircraft stay as safe as possible, uh, because they'll need to fly again next other, the, the the next day and the day after. So, uh, and aircraft and especially air crews are um, difficult. It's it's a difficult process. To it's it's one of those assets that is hard to. Uh, Come by. It's a specialized, a very specialized, a very highly skilled and trained asset uh, that you uh, simply cannot mass produce easily. Go ahead, Waypoint. Yeah, and um, that, that was obviously with the helicopters. Um, now, with fixed wing, with fixed wing, we had a, a laser designator, and um, we actually use a laser designator so that they could um, fly over waypoints to. Uh, and uh, we told them which direction, obviously, to come from. From the, using the waypoints, and then um, we uh, we we designated with our laser, and um, you we said illuminated, you illuminated the target. Sorry, you illuminated the target. We illuminated the target, and then the pilot literally dropped his bomb, and he went off to his next sortie. That's the way. Yep. The, the way. Yeah. Yeah, the fast movers, all fast movers, and all jet aircraft. Uh, uh, most, I mean, uh, you can use GPS uh, and drop GPS guided bombs, of course, but um, uh, target designation we're using laser, as waypoints were saying, is is one of the uh, the finer. It's it's an element. It's normal for facts, and it's uh, uh, that's that's the um, that's the thing. Um, I hope that answers the question, but I think your assessment is correct. Yeah, thanks very much, Nuno. Thanks. No, no problem, man. No problem. So let's go to Christopher Mondlane. Thanks so much. <clears throat> yeah, uh, I should have another question. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say it in case I could ask that one as well. But given this most recent discussion, I did want to ask. Um, I remember when Germany announced its hundred billion dollar invest in, in the dollar euro investment in um, in its uh, in its military and. You know, on the one hand, I was thinking, oh, well, great, they're finally stepping up. Uh, on the other hand, though, I'm also thinking, hmm, uh, that, uh, you know, and this is, you know, obviously relics of the past, but, you know, Germany massively in increasing its military, I think is just, I don't know, maybe I was educated in the UK. I think maybe just like a natural inclination to just like stiffen up a little bit and be like, um, okay. So I, I, I guess my question is like, uh, and I know we have a lot of uh, former military in the group and it'd be great to hear from some policy people uh, as well politics people but uh, i wonder if there comes a time where one says we have enough uh, capability now and we are relatively overmatched um especially as as a as a group as, as say nato for example um where we we perhaps should not be investing uh as as much uh into the military um, and, and so just to play devil's advocate on the discussion about, you know, uh, NATO has been underfunded, many NATO countries have underfunded the militaries. Um, is there such a thing and does it ever cross someone's mind to say, hmm, maybe we're spending uh, too much on the military? Every time the Appropriations Committee sees the National Defense Acquisitions Act, uh, they think they're spending way too much money. But the thing is, First, those the, to to go to your question about the hundred billion, and you're correcting that. Well, the hundred billion have not seen the light of day yet. The uh, the only top of my mind, without googling it, the only real um, 
the only real capability they've been the, that money was committed to was acquiring the F-35s for Germany. Apart from that, um, Germany has at this point a problem with procurement. At this point, has 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 had for some time a problem with military procurement. They have a massive procurement agency, which is civilian-led. Works. Uh, not its its work is subpar, but uh, we're in a paradox where one of the countries that builds some of the best military hardware anywhere in the world can't procure its own hardware. It's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of a paradox in that sense. So sorry, Nuno, I, I don't want to mean to interrupt, but I just want to make sure I get my question clear because I, I didn't mean to talk about like the substitution of how you could spend that euro, whether it be on a tank or on uh, some bread. Uh, I was talking about, um, uh, and I didn't, I didn't emphasize this enough, but is there a sense uh, that the more military equipment you have, the more you feel compelled to use it? Is there that kind uh, of thing? I don't think that's the sense. I think uh, the problem with that uh, is the more military hardware we have, the more we need to maintain the industry that created it. That's the old, uh, as Eisenhower said, that's the old military-industrial complex problem. Thank you. Right? Yes. Uh, because the moment we um, we have uh, a large military-industrial complex, which we already do, make no mistake, Europe already has a large military industrial complex. The moment we have that the mo- is the moment we also uh, need to keep it alive. Uh, it means that we'll keep on investing. Now, is that sustainable? That's quite the argument. But the problem, the thing is, we've completely forgotten that and it doesn't it in Europe it does not yet have the the necessary dimension not dimension I'm, I'm mispronouncing this it's uh, I'm miss um, it has the dimension but it's still very much in national boundaries okay you have intra uh, European competition in each of its own national defense industrial base. And what we actually need to do is be more like the Americans without trying to not get it out of hand. Because sometimes the American in military industrial complex gets a bit way over itself. So we need to strike try to strike a balance between the size and the scale necessary to defend a continent like Europe with some bad neighborhood. We're not surrounded by two oceans and, and friendly neighbors. We have some massive problems as this war brings to light. Uh, but as the Sahel, for instance, in Africa brings to light, we need to give it the necessary um, uh, scale, which we have some of the major arms companies in the world, in Europe, Rheinmetall, Leonardo, Naval Group, and Airbus, uh, and a few others, Dassault, Rafal, Dassault, sorry, Dassault, and so on. But uh, at the same time, 
we need to um, so that requires abandoning a bit of national politics which in the case of defense is one of the last redoubts of uh, national policy at the EU, EU level and in a, but we we can't leave it uh, we can't we need to we need to have a very um, as a, a Portuguese commentator once said um, and at uh, very aptly we European governments need to have a conversation with their public about the need to, uh, for one, scale the military investment, scale defense industry, and do everything else. And that's not possible, right? So this is this is this is some critical uh, things. I hope this uh, goes to your question. Yeah, and let me add one thing to this, Nuno, just in terms of numbers, given the fact that our German speaker had this question up. What people fail to understand is that Germany is highly indebted to its allies, specifically Britain, albeit that Britain has scaled down its uh, um, defense budget massively as well since the days of John Major, unfortunately, uh, but definitely to the United States of America. In 2018, Germany spent 1.24% of its GDP only, 1.24%, although it was obliged to and had committed itself to what was a basic threshold level of only 2%. It was the German coalitions since Gerhard Schröder specifically, but albeit you could say that even after about four years in office of Volker Rühr, uh, the Germans liked to be on the consuming end of the so-called peace dividend because they didn't want to defend. They didn't want to stand up for others. They simply thought they can be complacent. This at a time when we had already a war raging in the Balkans. This at a time when there was a massive shift in terms of electronics and IT in the defense industry and everybody, including, by the way, Bob Gates, whom you just quoted, Nuno, saw it, knew it, understood it, and with 9-11, it became even clearer. But it was specifically the German political class which simply derogated that. So when Germany now de declared 100 billion, what a number. Well, yes, the Allies rejoice. Finally, somebody's doing something. But it is absolutely irrelevant by comparison because it doesn't even make up halfway for what Germany has failed to invest since the massive drawdowns it incurred and therefore yeah. deteriorated and degraded its defense capacity. Germany's budget today should be, by the way, for the last year, 77.8 billion if only the 2% criteria were relevant. Now that is just the budget, but it should be substantially bigger because it has a lot to make up for, for the past, now it comes, 27 years. No, that's, that's the point, that's the problem here. Uh, I mean, uh, that in, in, addition, in addition to that problem is, you declare 100 billion, but you do not spend 100 billion, even if the money exists to be spent. Because procurement is so, uh, I'll not swear, it's so messed up with the sea that um, 
it uh, basically um, bogs down even uh, a massive financial envelope. That's that's uh, where we are. That's where we are today. Christoph, I, any uh, follow-up questions so we move on? Uh, no, thanks. You, you answered brilliantly. Um, I'll, I'll wait. I have another question. I'll just wait until uh, my turn. Uh, I'll go through the list. Go ahead. Thanks. Okay. Chef, go ahead. Mic check. Mic yeah, we check. hear you. Lighting, lighting, clear. Thank you. Um, I think the bigger question to what we've been talking about all day is that I'm hoping that our allies in Europe and the U.S. has realized that we are not living in a world where we can just sit around and pretend everything's going to be okay anymore. We have China breathing down our back, and we know that Russia can't be trusted. And they think that we're now in a, in a position where they can make their move. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing the things they're doing. If they didn't think that they could make this work, they wouldn't be doing it. And I, I just wanted to get your uh, thoughts on that. Well, the, I've said multiple times here, and I'll say it again. I think this is the first iteration of a bigger uh, picture of, for the 21st century, which is a certain competition between autocracy and democracy over what is in the, the, the global order and its uh, resources and how it's going to be uh, going for the future. I think that's uh, one of the, the, the largest, I think Chef just dropped out, but I think that's one of the largest competitions we need to, to be, to be uh, aware of. And obviously, China is looking at this. It's seeing its, it's seeing opportunity, sure. And China is the real systemic rival that can really create uh, an order for authoritarian regimes. But frankly, um, every I, I think there's still some need to understand this. And yes, after this war, uh, when this war is over, we'll be living in a. Um, gray zone conflicts of sorts between uh, what is a democratic bloc overall and some authoritarian bloc with some mingled in the middle. Daryl, go ahead. Yeah, I think um, to answer the question on how do they get these budgets and to maintain these budgets, I think something that has gone by the wayside even here in the States because we see a uh, lessening of the training. Uh, you know, the live fire exercises, the uh, interoperability exercises among even some of the NATO nations. Uh, we don't have those big, um, we don't have a lot of those big, uh, you know, force units, uh, force exercises uh, like some of the ones that just went on, uh, but they're a lot fewer. Uh, they're not as 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 uh, as big as they used to be in the Cold War uh, when during my time. Uh, those and I think that if we're looking to uh, keep budgets alive, I think those type of activities uh, where you are using material you maintain a level of readiness while you're doing these things because you see your deficiencies. 
you see what equipment is down a lot more often than it than you know you do if you're not really doing a lot of exercises and i think that when you when you can exercise your equipment you have to keep it up for these exercises then you know that you have to have these budgets and uh that's one way i think that we can get even a lot of a lot of the european partners to understand that in order to do this to have a real secure uh national security and um european security you knew the that you can really tell where the deficiencies lie and you address them you make sure Darryl, that the uh, you're, countries you're... address them there's two two points to that. Uh, I you're correct. We don't have the the large uh, set piece exercises as we have in the, um, during the Cold War, and even after the Cold War. But um, the problem also is, for instance, uh, we've uh, Europeans and Americans in the U.S. military too have been massively uh, um, deployed overseas in the Middle East, in Africa, there's still very relevant efforts going on in a lot of places in the world. And that ties up resources and that ties up forces and that, honestly, uh, to be completely honest, we're all, all of us in NATO, we are reaping uh, the inheritance of the global war on terror where we um, basically focused on um, a lot of the um, a lot of the issues uh, we focused on the we focused most of the times on uh, low um, intensity conflict and counterinsurgency and we are reaping that and yeah, all but, of a sudden but, but Nina, all of a this, sudden let, but, me, let me just say this they go Go, go, say. No, I was saying, I was saying that, Daryl, uh, yes, it's a one, one way to keep the, 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 the budgets alive. It's all that. I agree. Uh, this war brings the need for that. But you're dealing imminently with a hollow force. One thing that, for instance, uh, the, um, I believe it was Estonia, uh, to its prime minister proposed, which is a very, very, I think, important measure uh, for Europe in particular, is the joint procurement of uh, ammunition stocks, right? Because let's say you need 155 stocks or you need uh, Gimler's uh, GMLRS stocks, uh, smaller countries will have massive difficulty in getting in the queue, but let's say if EU defense fund procures a million rounds or 10 million rounds of 155, then it's much easier to mobilize industry for that, right? So there's things going on at European level. There's uh, budgets being scaled up for sure. There are uh, countries who've reevaluated their positions and are uh, investing 
But this will take time, Daryl. Make no mistake. This will take time. And there's places yet that are still trying not to believe uh, that there's a war going on. And even when the war ends, there's going to be a lot of difficulties uh, around the corner. Because depending on the war ends, on how the war ends, we may have trouble with uh, the unity of Russia. Uh, depending on how the war ends, Africa is brewing. Islamic terrorism hasn't forgotten us. The Middle East has issues. The Chinese are looking at this and saying, well, can we do uh, anything with it? So there's a number of things um, that need to be addressed. And, and for the future, we'll need to uh, scale up our, our defense uh, and our energy, our defense independence and our uh, defense uh industrial and in military politics but 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 we also need to have a very hard conversation with public opinion about this because that's the tricky part of this okay and that's not only for the for Europe that is also for the US in particular in particular no that's also applies to the US but uh, in Europe there's these three things a hard conversation to be had about military spending, a hard conversation to be had about energy, and a hard conversation to be had how that will affect everything else. And I don't think governments are there yet, for honestly. Is it... That was the that Go was ahead. the part that I was getting. That was the part I was getting at is that it needs to be fed to the public, and the public needs to realize that these things need to happen. And uh, that's what I was alluding to, you know, when I was talking about the um, exercises and everything and making sure these budgets stay where they are. And that's, yes, 100% getting the public buy-in and their approval and their, even if they don't approve, their understanding. Yeah, and in, in, in many places in Europe, you need to have a coherent, long-term, national security strategy because honestly and I'll, I'll speak for my country here uh, we have a very nice document called national security and defense uh, strategy roughly translated but honestly Daryl um, it speaks of things like counter proliferation cyberspace and that all, that's almighty fine, but I'll look at the thing and say, well, that's cool. <laughs> Where's the cyber capability? And, well, counterproliferation is a very big thing. What are you going to do about it? So um, are you willing to spend the billions for cyber alone? Right? So that's, uh, it's the politics needs to meet, the policy and the politics needs to meet reality. And then there's some hard, hard conversations to be had with the public. That's my view on this. But I'm probably not uh, alone. I'm not alone in this, but I'm not in the majority in this either. And speak truth to people because people, uh, electors are not stupid. It's interesting that, the, but it's interesting that the political momentum for such a coordinated effort has completely vanished into the background, um, has, has receded and, and 
the topic has vanished into the background. Nobody's talking about this. Everybody is so busy uh, as to what kind of platform is being demanded, what kind of capability is to be developed. But there is no communication as to strategic thinking and planning at all. And it shows yet again that everything boils down back to NATO, as opposed to the EU at least opening uh, discussion with NATO as to how to, based on what seems to be quite a success, by the way, if I may say, because the EU has fulfilled its role in terms of funding and supporting and the likes. In, Even going uh, a little bit beyond what's exactly its powers. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, but they, well, they, they've well, done reasonably well, well by comparison. Well, yeah, well. The commission, for instance, has done excellent work on this, even, even going a bit beyond what's their uh, role. Because if you look at the role, we, get, we have the European Peace Facility buying weapons. So, yeah. But go ahead, Daryl. You were, you were saying... Sorry, Axel. That's okay, Daryl. Daryl, go ahead and I'll then switch his rifle that's been up here. Oh, no, no, I was done. We had gone through what I want. What I wanted to say. Okay, about. okay, man. Good, thanks. Okay. No problem, no problem, man. Drivefly, please go ahead. Yeah, um, I got two things. First of all, I was going to say is that if, uh, with respect to the political side of things and the, and the thinking that's going on, I can tell you 100% here in the U.S., Okay, I can't speak for Europe. I do not go to Europe. I uh, don't even have much contact with Europeans other than this forum because I live so far out in the middle of nowhere, USA, um, that, uh, yeah, we have some Mexicans, we got some Canadians, but that's about it as far as, quote, international. Um, but the paradigm shift in the U.S. has been extreme and, and absolutely um, much more so than is being reported by the Washington wonks because I don't think they know. And by that, I mean the, the paradigm shift toward uh, being much more amenable to a strong defense and spending money on defense. And I can say that from anec uh, <clears throat> anecdotal evidence that I consider to be very strong. My two sisters, <clears throat> both older than me, both grew up in the 70s. <clears throat> Excuse me. Both were protesters in Vietnam, um, much more liberal than I am. I went to one, a wedding of one of their daughters, and she came up to me and kind of knew that I was involved with this space a little bit and was curious and said she was supportive of the effort. My other sister, who was by far the strongest lefty in the whole family, the whole family. I mean, she was more than anybody I know in my whole side, and, and I got some lefties in my family. She came up to me and said, Ukraine is the Dutch boy with the finger in the dike. We've got to do everything we can to help them. And we've got to start spending some money to make it possible. Okay. I about fell on the floor. I mean, literally fell on the floor because these are the kind of people that absolutely would never have gone there. Never. And they would, and for them to have volunteered it without me even prompting them or harassing them. Cause we used to have those kind of arguments back in the eighties where I was more of the defense guy you know, yeah, I'm a liberal, all right, but I don't like autocrats and I haven't forever. OK, so I'm thinking that if it's like that in my family, I'm betting it's like that in a lot of family. And I just think it's under the surface and we don't know it's there. And the politicians, if they're smart and they're listening, they will they will tap into that because I think it's a much, much deeper vein than people realize. Again, I can't speak for Europe. 
but I sure can sense it here in, in North America. Now, having said that, I'm going to go to a tactical thing. Have you seen the pictures from uh, out about the so-called convoy coming out of southern uh, Ukraine heading up to Zaporizhia? It was just posted by a gentleman by the name of Noel. He has a blog or a uh, Twitter feed, and it shows uh, a few. It's an aggregate. It's not a gentleman. It's an aggregate. Yeah, it's, an, it's very. Yes. Yeah, okay. Anyway, they do a nice job, and they have a, a recent tweet, forty minutes, forty-five minutes ago, of a Russian convoy coming up out of Verdansk, and I'm just thinking that looks like something that we're going to have to watch because I'm betting it's going to be one heck of a target either soon or wherever it parks itself. And I just wondered if you all had heard about it. And I'll listen. No, I just saw it really in dry fly. Uh, but honestly, um, I think I just saw it when you pointed out into Noel's feed and saw that it's uh, it's true. To your point on that, actually, there's some... Um, I have a friend who, who uh, deals with uh, some academy and academics uh, in Portugal, for instance, and in even in Europeans at the European level. And um, even the most liberal and uh, even some left-wing people are... Um, there's there's uh, uh, people that are openly talking about funding the military and discussing these matters of defense as normal matter. So in that sense, uh, there's a lot of there's good things going on, and I think politicians uh, should capitalize on the the fight for freedom, quote unquote, um, idea and mantra uh, to to get it um, to to basically get it uh, moving ahead because there's there's space and there's politics and there's public opinion for that. Um, in the end of the day, there's a number of core values that we all share that uh, are basically easy to exploit with some strategic messaging and getting people engaged in this. And it, people should, uh, politicians sometimes live in a bubble anywhere in the world, right? Um, every country that's a democracy, politicians sometimes live in a bubble. That bubble is sometimes hard to pierce. And you need to tell them, listen, there's a space for this. Speak the truth. Tell people, well, we need to do this because X, Y, Z. And then you'll see, you'll see uh, it, uh, you'll see it uh, flourish and there's going to be a space uh, for this. Okay. Uh, anyway, I, I think you're I think you're I, right. And all I'm saying is that my anecdotal evidence, if you had known my family, if you had spent the last 30 years with my sisters and I love them, they're wonderful. And and it's based on their value system. Their value system has always been more of a, a nonviolence first kind of solution. But this war woke them up. I mean, it just absolutely shook them to their core. OK, and I'm telling you, if it shook them. It shook a lot of people, a lot more than we're seeing. I think that paradigm absolutely has shifted. And I just think we need we need to, to be very, very tactical and strategic about bringing it out, because I think we could do some very, very good things for the whole planet if we do it right. And I'll listen. 
Absolutely, I agree with you. And I think I just booted Daryl from the space. Daryl, if you're listening, man, sorry. My fault, my bad. I was trying to remove you from speakers and I just put <laughs> from this space, man. Don't worry about it. Hey, tell him, tell him, man, Axel, because uh, I just removed him from the space. With, uh, we, I was trying to get him from removed from speakers and, well, sometimes fat fingers and iPhones. But I agree with you, DriveFly. There's a space for that conversation for sure. Aaron, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I'm from Australia. We've got a... Uh, what would be a more left-leaning government in power at the moment. They're called Labor. They're looking at doubling our national defence budget. We've got a lot of um, Chinese influence coming down through the Pacific and um, through a lot of our island neighbours. And they're a, they're a left-wing government. Our, our right-wing government is actually called Liberals, which is a bit, bit of a opposite of what you think. But when you're looking at people that may put a halt to it, like Biden came out yesterday and said, I couldn't understand his statement. We don't know Ukraine. We're not sure how much longer we're going to be able to keep up this kind of funding because the Republicans are going to have power in the House. Now, I asked someone yesterday afternoon about that. I said, it sounded so strange to try and, you know, that's a really bad message to be giving to Putin. You're, you're sort of giving him a, a incentive to keep the war going. And I asked some Americans whether this was a, a message, because that kind of message, if you're going to give it to Ukraine, should really go through political channels, I think rather than making it a big statement. So I asked whether it was a, a statement directed at the, the domestic American audience or whether it was aimed at the Europeans to say, look, you guys got to pull your finger out. We can do our bit, but we're not sure, you know, we need, we need you guys to, to contribute. They seem to think it was more of a political message to... to the Republicans to try and maybe squeeze them because um, it seems that there's a few, maybe 10 of them that are anti-sending money to Ukraine and it seems just to be purely political reasons, point scoring. But um, the, the main population in America seems to be behind sending money but it sounded like a funny statement but it, it, i'm not sure it's the left that you worry so much about but the right seems to be more of a worry in america i'll step down i think the u.s politics is complex for sure and i would um, say that there's been ample for now uh, and for the year 2023, there's the funding in place and there's bipartisanship in this matter. But the U.S., let's be frank, and I've invited Patrick to speak because I need someone to disagree with me and bang my head against the wall. How are you doing, mate? But first of all, good to have you. Uh, and um, But you'll, you can speak aptly to this. But honestly, I'd say that um, there's going to be some political uh, shifts coming in the U.S. Um, politics. 
and strategically, if you read, again, if you read the national defense strategy of the United States, national security strategy of the United States, they, it informs you that the Pacific is there um, and the Pacific in, the, in Asia is their focus. Uh, let's not be, we should not be uh, coy uh, here in Europe to think that the West will have our back permanently. But some still do. But Patrick, go ahead on the political side of the U.S. But I like to hear you, man. Good to have you. It's good to see you, Nuno. Uh, it's funny you brought this up. I was reading AP's latest polling, and for the military aid, you're actually right. There, there's still a fairly sizable majority that supports the notion of sending increased, uh, or at least uh, maintaining the level of military equipment and war material being sent. Unfortunately, the direct aid payments have now come under increasing fire with just under 20% of Democrats and just under 60% of Republicans now opposing direct aid payments. And, you know, the fact that the Deputy Defense Minister in Ukraine and the Deputy Minister for Infrastructure were both recently arrested on corruption charges doesn't help that. But they have very little to do with that at all, Patrick, uh, just because, and by the way, it doesn't help. That is also incorrect, if I may say so. I'm, I'm quite unhappy mm-hmm. about you stating this because the reason why they were arrested, the reason why they were arrested is specifically for the administration to clean house and they, that they showcase that they are absolutely relentless about doing so. So I'd, I'd rather be very careful about the statement. And but the, the way, thing is, demand, is it is a demand. It, let me finish. Let me finish. It, this is a it, this is a topic I know fairly well because we're very very close uh, with what is happening exactly in this field over there, and with the people who've been pressing this case, both from the EU side as well as NATO in that regard. And if you are involved in this process, you will know this: that um, the EU has not only has NATO provided systems access to integrate the whole procurement side, but also the EU has provided more than 100 people who are currently operating in Kyiv, as well as in at least five large cities, assisting the civil administration of Ukraine to ensure that under the stress of war, they do not allow for anyone to easily flank this and easily exploit it. And but the uh, thing by is... the way, the, S- the SPU, the SPU has incarcerated since last year. In uh, by the way, end of February, more than five hundred people from prior times who actually were corrupt. Now, but the I thing, the thing in, is, in Axel, wartime, that is pretty damn good. Axel, the thing is, I, I understand what Patrick is saying in the sense that very well. In the sense that um, one thing is what's happening, and of course. Uh, rule of law is one of the key tenets of EU ascension. But I understand what Patrick is saying, and that's an important take, because one thing is what may be happening, another thing is what public opinion sees. And whatever public opinion sees is reflected in those polls. And in that sense, that shifts the political discourse, I'd say. Uh, that's my well, view. We've had we've had uh, we've had a Republican um, member of the House here uh, this week, and he made it pretty damn clear that they're extremely well informed, that they feel very comfortable with the information which they've been given, yeah. and that recent visits by both senators as well as members of the House have uh, clarified for their perspective from their perspective exactly what they needed, and they are carrying this forward into the committee work. 
And um, yeah, but that, I'd say the Senate Armed Forces Committee well? is better informed in that regard than it ever was. Yes, but are they communicating it well? I think that's Patrick's point. What do you say, Patrick? Well, not only that, but actually, if you're disputing the arrest, you might want to contact both the Kiev Independent. I didn't dispute and... the arrest, Patrick. I didn't uh, okay. say that. I, I did not dispute the arrest. I disputed okay, I the validity that it would be actually supporting a narrative, because I don't like this being brought up as a past pro toto, when the toto is definitely significantly better suited and booted than any other ally we currently see. We have more corruption cases in other NATO member states in terms of public procurement than we currently have in terms of what is being given to Ukraine. And everybody who is in NATO knows this because we investigate them. Gosh. Yeah, but have, you, uh, have we communicated that? Go ahead, Patrick. Well, actually, you know, th this is frankly why I stopped coming in here, because I raised these exact concerns uh, right about six months, six or eight months ago. And I was told I was a at Russian propagandist. I was told I was a. I was told I was a Russian. At that time, Patrick, for a reason, because you raised guys, it two and a half months guys. and a half. No, sorry, you raised it, and you come back with this here and have the chutzpah to do so at a point in time when I told you last time around. Axel. Look at the system. The system was already implemented. See, he can't. Yeah, Axel, I, Axel uh, I've invited Patrick to speak. Let, exactly. That is, fine. that is fine. I would have invited uh, I... him as well. But please, can we can we please not highlight that six months ago you said something which two and a half months prior, by the introduction of the respective systems of procurement control by NATO, was already solved? No, Axel. I said corruption would be an issue and that steps should be taken to mitigate it wherever possible. I was told by Yehuda, among others, that I was a Russian troll, I was a Vatnik, I was a Kremlin apologist, and everything else. I've never said this, Patrick. I, I'm I not have never said you this. Did. I, you had, did, I, did I mention your name? No, I did not. Yes, I didn't please mention your talk name. to me, because I'm, ang I'm angry that you raise a topic where you and I know we discussed this. You and I specifically discussed this. When you raised the issue last time around, we had exactly this point, that the system of controls was already in uh, in place and now, now we it's find being out. abused and now it's being abused, but we don't find this out because the the corruption cases have nothing to do with nato help uh, yes they, they actually do, do did, did you look at the deputy defense minister's case he's accused of purchasing food at inflated prices we have specifically food given at inflated Ukraine, prices which doesn't we have come specifically from the, from the given, budget assistance we have specifically given Ukraine assistance in terms of both their military and their infrastructure in terms of direct aid payments. We don't know whether or not that aid was used in this scheme. We don't know. You don't. It and is I don't. already. If you read the case, by the I, way, I if you want to have the, the material, case. I have the case here, too, because there is a reason for it. We're very, very interested in what happens between Budanov and Reznikov. I, I can assure you that the case has already listed. This is budget aid, which comes out of the purchasing power at that point in time of EU aid, which was given to Ukraine to purchase food. And by the way, the added cost that has also been dispelled already as a notion, the added cost is to more than 80% a result of added transportation cost and not and yet higher they still prices. Arrested it. And yet so they what? still arrested they him for they arrested him. They arrested him for the wasteful. They arrested him for the wasteful usage of two purchase contracts out of the whole allotment. 
And this yeah, is what's being it's, made it's, out of it in the media. No, this there, is what's being but, made out but, of it in the media. It's completely the point, insane. The, but, and they're also but accusing him of embezzling some 400,000, I believe it was dollars or euros. I don't remember which, which the monetary value was. So let's not pretend on this one, Axel. I don't it pretend. is an issue. There should Just, be please don't uh, from start the US this. Let's not pretend. From the US no, it has nothing this. to do with the saying, US aid. No, actually, I'm trying to, to I'm trying to explain aid. to you why I brought it up to begin with. From the US end, the average American voter looks at this and says, Oh, we were lied to. There is corruption in Ukraine. And that drives this sentiment that we're seeing in the AP poll. That's why I brought it up to begin with. You have to understand how Americans look at this stuff. Well, and explain to me how a Republican member of the House comes here and tells us that he has actually looked at all these matters and he's pretty comfortable with the information he has solicited. Axel, let me just step in and say, as I see where he's going to explain, because which Republican member, Axel? May... But Patrick, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was curious which Republican member specifically said that. If Don Bacon, we had Don Bacon here. Okay, and uh, he's a former colonel of the Air Force, so I'd, I'd say he's a reasonably trustworthy, good guy. Well, that's fine. I, I know nothing about the man. I won't make a judgment about him. But I will say that it is an issue. The fact that it's prominently now in the Ukrainian press has Americans looking at this and saying, OK, so direct aid payments could be absconded with. That's bad. We should probably stick to military aid that is non-fungible. And that, I think, is what I haven't insane. seen. That is insane. I'm it trying is to explain insane. to you, Axel. That's why yeah, you well, haven't seen. I can definitely seen... tell you, if I, te- if, I te- if I tell this to uh, Dan Henninger, for example, at the Wall Street Journal, who I presume you will respect, he's a very decent man, and he doesn't take bullshit. He will probably say, okay, there is a slim level of slime there. And by the way, the Ukrainians got rid of it. Underneath there is a, a very good procurement system, and they are taking steps. Let's look at this this way. I'd say this is transparency in action. I, I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, my point was that's why you've seen a shift, a bigger shift in direct aid payment opinion than you have military aid. Broadly speaking, military aid is still widely supported in the U.S., but direct aid payment is not. Well, n- certainly not among the Republicans, and, it's, and direct aid opposition has even gone up amongst, amongst Democrats. And so that's why I brought this up, to illustrate why I think we're seeing that disparity. Yeah, yes, I think, I, think the I, believe too, the issue, the I believe the issue is communication, because, okay, the, the political bubble may have, uh, it has significant information. That's one thing. But the other thing is what shifts public opinion. It's a different matter. And with this, I understand exactly what Patrick is saying. What Patrick is saying is one thing is the information you have, though another whole different ballgame is just the, how the public sees it. And how the public sees it is let's not give money, let's give things because things are harder. That's my. Uh, that's what I'm assuming from your, from your explanation, Patrick. Uh, me, me, things are hard. You know, Correct. Exactly me, so. Man, things interject. are harder to shift. You know, can I interject here, uh, Daryl? Let me just uh, address this. I think that's that's the the thing here, and I understand that 
it may be a, a political communication, strategic communication issues. Sure, sure thing. But the problem is it's an issue, right? Let's not rub the issue under the table. Uh, Axel, let's not put the well, issue under not. the table. But we are not. We're not. We are not. We, are the fir- we were the first ones to report on the topic here, by the way. The first ones on the very yes. day when, the, when this came up. And we have highlighted this. And we've had people here from the Helsinki Commission. We have people here from the Congress. And no, yes. this is not a political process. But the funny part is that the serious newspapers in the United States, and please accept the fact that the Wall Street Journal is a serious newspaper have taken a very balanced view on this and yes, I'm I, not don't saying see the same, I don't see the polling by the way I'm just looking at uh, real clear politics and let me just find the numbers from a few days ago I don't see that uh, say the attack on direct aid I see it in certain areas of the media where this is, war is being waged because they've lost pretty much every other argument but there is no such thing it doesn't. It doesn't work this way. And by the way, uh, the direct aid has already been authorized, so it's not even up for discussion for the coming months. This is a, uh, from my point of view, Patrick. Yes, if, you're following, if you're following this, if you're following this, it is a straw man's discussion. Whilst at the same time, Ukraine is fighting the war it needs to fight, whereas we constrain them and don't provide them enough help on the military end. But, uh, but Axel, uh, the, the problem is, the problem with that is it's not a strongman discussion in the sense that you will be entering an October primary cycle in the U.S. Oh, sure. And oh, the, sure. But that's a different uh, thing. And that, that, that's a discussion and, uh, which that's, will then that's happen my, within, within, yeah, I agree. I agree. But that is, that is electioneering. Okay. That is completely fine. And, I don't mind this. And, and this is Go what on. I wanted to interject here. Uh, the just, same, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Sorry, Daryl. The same, the same people that rejected giving the military aid now are rejecting the aid because of, quote-unquote, finance or corruption in this case. The group, they have not changed that they have, they want to give zero aid to Ukraine, that they feel that whatever is there is not our issue. And that yeah, you, but and, the problem, Patrick, wait, wait, wait a minute, Nino, Nino, hold on. And so you can't just say that it's this now, because the they'll move the foot, the goalposts. Once this minister is out, if he is found to be corrupt, whatever, because right now they have him under arrest, but we don't know their laws and how they do it. They may arrest and let him go. And that that may be the way it works, is that he's arrested first. And we all know that happens here in the U.S. People are indicted, they're arrested, they go to see the judge, and they're let go. They may not ever see a courtroom. Okay? That's just optics. And let's, so let's not argue the optics of the situation. Let's look at the brass tacks of the attacks. Let's look at the brass tacks of the attacks themselves and that is the same people that did not want the military aid don't want the aid now because quote-unquote corruption it wasn't corruption then but now it's corruption once the corruption's over then what is it going to be and that's the question the voters the voters in a certain yes the voters in a certain demographic Mm -hmm. 
they are looking and they have not changed their opinion, not one iota. But they Carol, have, that's the they have that's their opinion exactly and the it's they they that's have exactly. their opinions and it has not changed. Yeah, is what I'm trying to say. You're you're entering uh, you know, uh, I need to wrap up the space anyhow. So, I I need to wrap up the space, but I'll so the, uh, just say something. Okay, Let me okay. just say something, Andrew. I, I need to wrap up the space. Line, one... I understand all that, but the cold hard fact—that's all. The cold hard fact. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, Daryl. The cold hard fact, and Patrick just let me say this, and then I'd like your opinion, and I'll wrap up the space on my side. But the cold uh, hard fact is, no matter who's thinking it. People vote. We are entering the primary year of the presidential, the 2024 election cycle. There's no way around that. That will be, that will have impact. Yes, 2023 is funded because of the 2024 cycle. A That's win in this thing. war will change that whole opinion. Yeah. But in this war, that all this corruption nonsense will not change will not sure. affect him negatively. But I don't see sure but I don't see the, the the dynamics to win this war uh within the next year. A lot is on the is on the table but I don't really see the dynamics of that. So we but need map, to be careful the map changes will the map changes will show up. One hopes, but I see that there will be gains, but there will be a phase of this war later on, even with Ukraine's uh, uh, victory or with Ukraine's successes in the battlefield. There's going to be a very perilous state in this war when Crimea is in play. But Patrick, go ahead and I'll wrap up the space next. Oh, thanks. No, I just Axel, for your reference, this was an AP NORC poll it compared two samples from May 12 to 16 last year. And then from January 26 to 30 this year, uh, Daryl, for your reference, opposition to direct aid was up one point among Democrats and eight points among Republicans. So the narrative is shifting. And, and that was my concern. And, and I thought the, uh, the corruption issue may have been a driver of that. That's why I brought it up. Patrick, to be honest on the Republican side, does eight points change anything? Because, we know that Republicans typically will not vote for Democrats. They ju- it's a it's a closed uh, loop. That's true. When you talk Republicans, but so it, if, it, even it, if they did, even if it was a twenty percent, those same Republicans would vote for Republicans. That's true, but it does change it when they control the House, which controls the money. But there's no money issues at the current time. There will because be the well aid, because the aid has already been approved to, right, for the time to come. As you and I know, fifty billion dollars does never goes as far as Washington D.C. thinks it will. So I expect they'll probably need another tranche of aid in a few months. And I think and that'll be a lot tougher pres- Presidential drawdown authority will won't cover some of the the money that needs to be spent. Yes. Yep. That's right. Well, fortunately, but fortunately, I'll, there are I'll nations wrap nations with which have money as well. Do, no, no, if I may just say it, because we need to bring this out there. The United States of America are the biggest supporter of Ukraine, and that's grand, and we are deeply thankful. But Norway just approved um, a substantial 
aid package, which exceeds, by the way, what the U.S. is giving. And the EU has money too. Trust me, we'll get there. And in the meantime, this year's budget will showcase Ukraine winning. And nothing is liked better. Nothing is ever appreciated better than somebody winning. That's true. Okay, so let's wrap up this today for my part. Uh, good discussion, everyone. This has been a good space. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, join us next Thursday. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's always good to be here.